Thanks for being here today. Welcome to City Church. We are uh, glad to have you. We are starting a brand new series um, called Prophecy, and uh, we are going to uh, be getting into some, uh, some territory that trying to think about how to best word this. Like a lot of times when we are going line by line, as we did through 1 Corinthians, you know, what we're trying to do is just do our best to interpret how it is applicable to our lives. When we talk about prophecy, and there's, there's two basic types of prophecy in Scripture. There is the prophecy that has been fulfilled and the prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. So the prophecy that has been fulfilled we can look at that and say, okay, here's how this was fulfilled and here's how it's applicable in our lives. But the prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled, uh, and, and as I hope to be able to do today, uh, it really does not, there's no way to say beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is exactly what it means. And I, it's a pet peeve of mine, even when some pastors whom I really respect get up and kind of create a hill to die on when it comes to prophecy yet to come. Uh, and uh, I, I hope that I can give a, a good example of why in just a moment. So uh, I'm going to be moving between a board and the TV. And if you're watching online, this is not something we normally do. And so our camera operators are going to try to navigate with us as we do that. Uh, there are a few things that I think uh, will help you to be able to uh, understand timelines and stuff if I'm able to write them out uh, versus just having it on the screen. And then the last thing I'll say is that uh, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I watched Indiana Jones and thought that Indiana Jones and his chalkboard was the coolest thing on the planet. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, what? But I'm not going to lie, it was my thing. And so I have always aspired to be able to teach at that type of level. And I never, uh, you know, when I received the call to be a pastor all my life, and I knew that's what I was going to do, I never aspired through Bible college or anything to, to, to be a... Um, you know, uh, one of those guys that does all the rhymes, you know what I'm saying? Like that makes you feel good and, and whatnot. I wanted to be somebody that really was teaching scripture. And the reason that that happened was when I was, uh, when I was in Bible college, I noticed that there were a lot of guys in school who were uh, uh, really focused, had aspirations of greatness but I had professors that were teaching the Bible in ways I had just did not know existed. Like I did not understand the, the, the incredible depth of scripture. And so I, I, that passion kind of began to really kind of burn inside of me. And so uh, today I hope to fulfill some of my own uh, uh, passion by teaching this way. Uh, secondarily, uh, I have been reading and preparing for this specific message for over a year. And so there is so much information uh, that I have that I want to be able to present that it's really been difficult, even down to last night, how to break all of this up. And so over the course of the, the, the next uh, several weeks, I hope to be able to uh, do it in a way that whether you are young or older, it is new information, it's encouraging, and, uh, and, and, and maybe at the end of the day, it inspires you to be a better believer, uh, as I believe is the goal of prophetic uh, writing. So let's stand to our feet. We're going to be uh, reading in First Thessalonians. Uh, if we can go ahead and... Uh, just waiting on that to pop up on the screen. There we go. All right. First Thessalonians chapter four. He says here in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And remember that 
in 1 Corinthians, we talked about the fact that, that there's this debate around the resurrection, right? And why is there a debate? It's a debate because man can't replicate it. We can't duplicate it. And so people from the outside are going, we can't duplicate, duplicate resurrection, so it must not be true. It must not be real. And Paul's making the argument for the reason why you can't duplicate it is because you're not God. It's beyond your own personal scope. And then the testimony and the effects of the resurrection are so huge that it's not difficult to find people at this point, even so, who have personally been touched by it. So, uh, so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So death is just not an obstacle for God. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise First, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, so, so let's. I want to jump from this. Well, let me just pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I pray that you will be with us today as we dive into your word in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. I have one more production request. I don't know that we can pull this off, but can we move this TV to over here? Is that like a full no-go or is it possible? So just so you guys know, I build my sermon around my, script, uh, around my uh, screenshots so that they kind of, I know where I'm at. So I don't have to sit here and look at a book the entire time or a page and not being able to see it. So we're doing some different things and typically the TV's over here. So, uh, uh, so, all right. So we'll get into the flow here. All right. So when it comes to this idea of the rapture, when it comes to the idea of a, a of a, uh, of a church coming to be with Christ, okay, we get divided real quickly in the church, okay? Uh, and so there are, there are a few uh, biblical views that I think are, are heresy. They, uh, they bring in what really at the end of the day is kind of new age mystic philosophy to create their view of the last days. I'm not really gonna touch on those. Uh, we talk extensively about the impact of uh, mysticism and this new age philosophy in the church. And it is rampant today. I just can't say that enough over and over and over to you. Uh, you need to be very guarded. Uh, and, and you'll understand why as we go through this series. But some of the views that uh, are held by people who I consider to be brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, I want to touch on those real, real briefly as we dive into some of the text. Yeah, that's, that's good enough for now. Thank you guys so much. Uh, so the first is uh, the, those that would consider themselves to be all millennialists. Uh, this is a view that the thousand year period uh, is a spiritual reigning and not a literal reigning. What does that mean? So in the text, there is this, uh, this portion of Scripture that talks about the, the, uh, Jesus reigning on earth for a thousand years. And during that time, and we'll get to this, but during that time, uh, the, the enemy is bound up and not allowed to have any dominion. Okay, while the enemy doesn't have dominion, there will be peace. And then towards the end of that thousand year period, uh, the enemy is released back onto the earth and deceives the hearts of men and a final conflict takes place. And during that final conflict, okay, uh, the enemy is defeated and he is cast out forever and ever and ever. And that, that begins the eternal reign. So there is a, there is a gap between Jesus' resurrection, right? Uh, and, and then this, this eternal, I mean, this thousand-year kingdom being set up and the eternal kingdom. And most Christians hold to this view that that thousand-year period happens after 
the end of the seven-year time of tribulation that the earth encounters. But there are a group of people who believe that, that, that the seven years tribulation is not exactly the way that it's interpreted, that we're not getting it, and that the thousand years began uh, probably somewhere around 70 AD. And uh, what's critical to this is that for them is that scripture uses the number a thousand, all right, many times to mean immensity or multitude, right? And this is true. There are several times in scripture where the number a thousand is not a literal number a thousand, but it is just to give this idea that it's a lot. And so because they are able to cross-reference that a thousand can have that meaning at some point, then it holds to this idea that this is just a, a long period of spiritual reigning. Uh, it is not a physical reigning. And what's important to understand is if, if you are an all-millennial or if you know somebody who is, that they believe that most of the prophecies that are given inside of Scripture have already been fulfilled. There are a handful that are left to be fulfilled and that we're in the midst of this thousand-year reigning period. Now, I don't land there. Uh, I, I hope to explain why as we go through this series. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This anchor verse for the all millennialist is that Jesus himself fulfilled all of those prophecies for the end times, okay? Uh, and in essence, the end times were actually the, was the end of the old covenant. Now, another one we're going to be moving out of this very quickly, is the preterist. Uh, and I'm only going to talk about partial preterism. Uh, these are terms that you might say, well, I'm not, I don't hear these terms. Content inside you might be familiar with. So this is the view that the prophecies of Daniel, Matthew 24, and Revelation this one gets a little bit like you got to jump through some hoops, I'll explain. Uh, except the last two or three chapters have been fulfilled no later than 100 AD, okay? So they really believe that we are past almost all of Revelation and we're living beyond that time period. Uh, they don't believe that there will be a catching away, uh, which, you know, we read about there in 1 Thessalonians. They don't believe in an antichrist. Uh, in, in the way that most of us would interpret that. Uh, they don't see, this is pretty significant, they don't see Israel as having a place in the, what we would consider to be the end times. And this idea of the last days for them as well references the old covenant being uh, kind of fulfilled and stepping into the new covenant. Now, this is the hoops. Revelation uh, 6 through 18, strictly symbolic. Revelation 19, strictly literal. Revelation 20, strictly allegorical. Revelation 21 through 22, strict, strictly li uh, literal, okay? Again, if you're a preterist in here, I'm not trying to uh, heap anything on you. I, I do find that uh, uh, it's a little bit for me to jump through some of the hoops and land there. I land in what is, uh, I think, a little bit more of a traditional pre-millennial uh, perspective, which is what we'll be teaching from as a whole today. And that premillennial means that the thousand-year reigning of Jesus has not yet begun. Now, inside of the premillennial perspective, there is a divide on the view of the rapture, and that is that uh, some will hold to a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, meaning that in the seven-year period, some people believe the church is taken away at the beginning, some people believe the church is taken away in the middle, and some people believe that the church is taken away at the end. And this is what I tell people all the time when they go, when they ask me, are you, are you a pre, mid, or post-trib guy, right? I ask them which they are, because typically if they're asking, they have a strong opinion, right? And then after they tell me what they are, I ask them what they think of the evidence against their position. And typically, most people who would say that they're pre-trib have not really looked into the evidence for the mid-trib or the post-trib. And so, uh, if you begin to look into those arguments, they're pretty compelling as well. And so, 
I am a, I don't care trib. Uh, I want to love Jesus and do whatever he would have me to do. And so this is not my hang up here, right? Uh, I, the Left Behind series of books that came out, I, I guess, what was that, in the 90s, you know, was all built around this pre-trib model. And man, if you are a pre-trib guy, gal, I love you. Thank you for being here today. At the end of the day, if we end up in some period of tribulation and we're still here, I'm going to still love you and Jesus is still going to be king, right? So my faith is not hung up on any of these things. So the thing I want to say about the rapture, right? So if we look at the rapture uh, inside of a seven-year period of tribulation, I'm just going to put it way up here because I don't know where it lands. I'm not going to put it on a timeline, okay? We're just going to say that it exists out there. And my argument for believing in the rapture or the catching away is that uh, there is a very distinct um, difference in the two passages or the two areas of Scripture where we see Jesus' return. The first, as we read there in 1 Thessalonians beginning uh, in chapter 4, takes place in the clouds, Right? So Jesus returns into the clouds, and, it's, and, and this is important because it, it does not give us any indication that he touches the earth. Instead, the, those that are dead and those that are alive are caught up to him. Why does that matter? Well, because when Jesus' return takes place, as described in Zechariah 14, 3 and 4, he, he comes to the Mount of Olives and there is a massive earthquake that takes place. So when Jesus does come back to earth and is physically here present, uh, there will be some signs that follow that. And I agree with that. And so I am okay with a rapture taking place. When I was younger, I used to really struggle with this, right? This idea of Jesus coming twice and how that fits inside of Scripture. And uh, there is just a real, real distinction when we talk about meeting him up in the clouds versus being here physically on uh, the earth. Now, Let's get into the bulk of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to be looking at some text in Revelation. And the reason that Revelation is such a good place to come when we want to talk about end times prophecy, uh, it's not because all the answers are there. All right? When somebody says, well, I just read Revelation, that gives me everything I need to know, then you don't actually read Revelation. Because Revelation is constantly talking about the Old Testament. Now, this is another one of these case in points that I'm going to make for, for, uh, for why we cannot be a New Testament-only church, right? That is not a biblical model, right? We are New Covenant, but the New Testament, those guys who wrote it, they are constantly quoting and pointing back and even assuming that you understand some things from the Old Testament. And that is exactly what's happening here in Revelation. There is an assumption that you are aware of prophecies that have not been fulfilled that are in the Old Testament. And remember that the Old Testament is not the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant takes place during the Old Testament time period, but not everything that's in the Old Testament is directly tethered to the Old Covenant. Much of it is just tethered to Jesus, to the, 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 the greater narrative. So what what does revelation mean? Revelation, it actually translates to the word apocalypse. And this is a type of literature that was popular among the Jews, apocalyptic literature. So the reason that it is called revelation is not because it is the only insight or this one like glimpse into Jesus's return. It is because, and the New Testament church read it this way, because it is a type of literature, right, that they are used to that uses a lot of numbers and a lot of symbols. So when we go to look at Revelation, we cannot look at it through modern language, okay? We don't get to, to uh, uh, we don't get to apply our understanding of English to this text. We have to be really careful and look at how it is that John would have been writing it, understanding his audience to receive it, and how the audience would have received it. Now, I say John because we know that John wrote this, this letter, okay? What the debate is, is whether it was John the Apostle or a different John. 
most scholars and historically speaking have taught and believed and received that it was John the the disciple that followed Christ. Uh, we know that this John, regardless of whether it was John the apostle or a different John, was on the uh, Isle of Patmos. I, when I teach, I reference freely that it was John, the one that was with Jesus, okay? So I hold that, but I don't hold that closed-handed, right? So if it turns out that there's two Johns when we get into eternity, I'm not going to really care, okay? All right, so a couple of other things real quick. Revelation, as a, as a book for us, is one letter to seven churches, one letter to seven churches. And this is really important because so many times people teach this as if it were seven letters to seven churches. And why do I say that? Because what happens is, is that we begin to peel away parts and make it applicable here. And this part is applicable here. But in context, all seven of these churches, okay, received this letter, and inside of this letter, okay, these seven churches, they got insight into how the other churches are operating. So, you have seven churches, and some of them are dealing with apathy, right? Some of them are dealing with sexual immorality, and some are faithful, But all seven churches at this point are made aware that there are other churches that are operating like this. There are other churches that operate in sin. There are other churches that are operating in faithfulness. And they're being called out. Why are they being called out? Well, the reason that, it's, that they're being called out publicly is because it is beneficial for all of us to understand that when the church begins to operate in sin, it has to be reined in. So this idea, and this is not a new modern idea that all of a sudden like, oh, we're super enlightened and we can just be, you know, loving no matter what somebody's doing, okay? And they can just be part of the church. That's, that's, that's not a new thing. And the beginning of Revelation, the first four chapters are bringing that to light. So in order for, the, for, in order for us to understand the entirety of what we're getting in Revelation, we have to keep in mind that it is applicable to every church, whether that church is living a, a public lifestyle of sin or whether they are walking in righteousness, okay? So the question that kind of births out of this is, are all the churches first century churches? So you have debates around this. Are the seven uh, churches that received the letter, are they physical churches and that's the end of it? Or are these church ages, right? So there's seven church ages. And when we get to the final church age, we'll know that we're in the final days. I think that it is probably this. I think it was written to seven churches that operate in the way that we will see the seven church ages operate. And that final church, that final uh, church age will be symbolic of the time drawing near to the end for the return of Christ. And the reason that I say that is because we have seven churches, right? And then we have a, a scroll, we'll get to in just a moment, that has seven seals on it. Little wax seals is what it says. And there's seven of them. And then we have seven trumpets, Okay. And each of these clearly indicates some type of ending before the return of Christ. So if we have these three sevens that are brought together, I do not think that it's logical to say, well, this is its own thing, and then the seals and the trumpets are something completely different. I think that because this was one letter written for each of these seven churches, for us, it all comes together. So I believe that there are probably seven church ages that are represented in the seven churches, although I think any church could probably operate within any of those seven at any given time, but we will see a predominance among the churches to look like this. And I believe that we have seen that. Now, we did a pretty extensive teaching on the seven churches a couple of years ago. We've got a playlist. We'll link that in the description today. You can go back. I'm not going to spend any more time on those seven. Now, uh, 
before we get to the seven uh, uh, wax seals, what we end up with is John getting a glimpse into the throne room of God, okay? He gets this glimpse of what is happening beginning in Revelation chapter 5, and he sa it says that, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with the seven seals. So before we get a picture of what the seven seals are, we get a picture of where they're at. And so they're, it's in this throne room, and, and John, he sees in the right hand of him who is on the throne a scroll that is written. It is bound up, and, and it is sealed with seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I can count, seven wax seals, okay? And all seven of those seals are preventing that scroll from being read, that tells us a, a really simple thing, that the contents of that scroll, right, were meant to be bound up and not revealed until a certain time. So that, that should encourage us that there, there may be parts of the scripture, right, that do not bear good interpretation until the time of revelation is yet for them too. So there might be things that you have, would have read in the first century of the church that just might not have made sense that today we're reading it and going, oh, that makes a lot more sense, right? Because revelation is being given. It's being revealed to us. Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. This is really important. I want you guys to track with me. There is a question that's being asked, who is worthy? Meaning that not just anybody can come up and pop those seven seals off. Pull out your little pocket knife. No. Somebody has to be worthy to do this. Watch verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So they were, the question was being asked, and they're looking, right, in heaven. They're looking on earth. They're, they're looking everywhere. No one is found to be worthy, right? Verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So John is grieved for some reason that nobody is going to be able to open this. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So he hears somebody say this. This is significant. This was this was really good to me when I was going through my preparation. It is said a lion can open the seal. So a voice says a lion can open the seal. No one is found yet to do it. We get to verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Watch this, okay? It is said a lion can open the seal, but John sees a bloody lamb opening it. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Remember the disciples. They're at the last meal with Jesus before he's going to be crucified. What is their question? Who will sit at your right hand and reign with you? Why? Because the popular belief at this time was that there would be military rule taking place. Jesus was not just going to be a king that was some metaphor. Jesus was going to pull an army together and they were going to go and take over the earth through force. That was how they interpreted the coming of the Messiah. That 
is the lion that has given the right to conquer. So that is what is spoken, but what is revealed is a bloody lamb. And so there's, John's making this connection for us that, yeah, all of this conquering and this military language that you're hearing, that this is not somebody else. You just misunderstood what conquering looked like. Instead, it was going to be a sacrifice that was going to be taken, taking place. And so, yes, a lion can open the seal. That lion is a bloody lamb. Revelation 5, 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So, John brings some correction and some edification to seven churches He then has a glimpse into the throne room of God where he sees this scroll with these seven seals and where it was believed that it would be a conquering warrior that would come and break the seals. It was instead a bloody lamb. Why could these seals not have been removed? Because the bloody lamb was not present. Jesus had not been sacrificed yet. So you're looking for somebody to open the scrolls, but Jesus has not paid the price yet. And so this scroll was being bound up not to be revealed until Jesus did his thing. Now, let's take a look here at the seals. Seals one through four, and I'm going to try to do this. This is really the bulk of what I, I, I hope that I can help you guys see. Um, the, the seals, as they are released, they're going to, or as they're popped, different things are going to happen, and we're going to talk about those, uh, some of them extensively today, some of them in coming weeks. But the first seal is the release of, uh, so what I'll do is I'll write seal, and then we're going to write trumpet up here, and we'll get to the trumpets in a moment. All right, so seals one through four. These are the, uh, the four riders, okay? Maybe you've heard of the four riders of the apocalypse, the four horsemen. I'm going to talk more about them in the coming weeks. But these uh, four bring death, pestilence, war, devastation, right? So, so these are things that in our lives we've become more and more familiar with, right? Like, like there are many days in our lives where we hear about large numbers of deaths, people starving, people faced with disease, right? That's what fuels our headlines. At some point, though, there will be four riders that will be released, and those four riders are going to bring those, that type of uh, environment in a way that is, has yet to be seen or known. Uh, the fifth seal gets opened, and the, this is seal five, this is martyred Christians, okay? These martyred Christians are told specifically to rest. So these are believers. They are being killed because of their faith, and they're being told to rest. And the reason they're being told to rest is because there are more Christians yet to die. So they die, they're in the presence of God, and God's like, hey, just chill out. There's a lot more that are going to join you, okay? Then we get to the sixth seal, and this one right here reveals the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is something that is referenced for us in Ezekiel. It's referenced in uh, Joel. Again, that's one that we will talk about a little bit more in the coming weeks. But I want us to look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. As the day of the Lord comes, right, and all of these people are dying, there is this outcry. And the outcry is, God, what are you going to do about this? And so we're in the middle of these seals being revealed, popped, revealed, we're getting insight. And then John stops because there's this question. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
And so what he does is he pauses for a moment, right, to answer the question, how can anybody stand during this type of oppression? So something happens in such a way that brings so much death and so much hardship and so many people are dying that there is an outcry spiritually, right, that is saying to God, how can we handle this? And so God does something. Now, remember the story of the Passover lamb, and this is why I say John expects that you know the Old Testament. God shows up through uh, Moses, and he comes to uh, Pharaoh, and he says, listen, you've held the Hebrew people as slaves long enough. You're to release them immediately, right? And Pharaoh is like, why would I let go of a free workforce? I'm not doing that. And then we have these plagues that are taking place, right? And, and people are suffering. Note something here, that in the midst of these plagues, in the midst of this hardship, people do not respond. Pharaoh does not change his mind. But then a final plague is going to show up, and that one is the one that's going to take the lives of all the firstborn sons. Now, the Hebrew people, of course, are naturally going to be panicked by this because if, if the firstborn sons are going to die, how are they exempted? And Moses tells them to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood from the sacrifice and mark it over their door. And when the angel of death comes, the angel that comes to take the firstborn son shows up, he will pass over and not enter that house. So now, fast forward to wherever we are in history that John is seeing, and the, there are so many dying, and they begin to cry out, how can we do this? How can we survive? And John says that there is an angel with a signet ring, and he is given the ability to mark those that will be protected as God's own, all right? Now, we are told that 144,000 are protected. And people get really hung up on this 144,000. People build entire, like you've got entire offshoots of Christianity around who the 144,000 are. It's, it's really actually quite simple. This is that same language that John used when he was there at first in the throne room. Look at this. 144,000, and then he begins to say 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. He goes all, all the way through all 12 tribes, right? So 12,000 times 12 is 144,000. This is military language that is used in the Old Testament, right, to discuss warfare. But look at, so this is what he's told, but look at what he sees. Revelation chapter 7, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we are told that 144,000 are protected, but we see a number far beyond that. We see a number that, that represents, and this is significant too, it is not just Jewish people, right? Twelve tribes, you would think that what he saw was a reflection of twelve tribes, but that's not what he saw. What he saw was people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, right? Giving us this picture that Jesus died for everyone, irregardless your uh, socioeconomic standing, your race, your language, your education. It did not matter. Jesus died for you. And eternity is going to be filled with incredible diversity that's not stripped away. It doesn't say, I looked out and I saw everyone looking the same. No, they, there is somehow in this moment, we're going to see people and we're going to see reflections of who they are, who they were. And then after we get this picture of how some are protected, the seventh seal is broken. And when the seventh seal is broken, okay, that brings us to the end. This reveals seven angels… with seven trumpets. 
seven angels with seven trumpets. So let's take a look at the trumpets. The first trumpet that we see, all right, and, and this, is, uh, this is why I wanted to write this out for you, because we've got the seven churches, the seven seals, and then we get the seven trumpets. And the first trumpet happens all the way back here, okay? And the first trumpet uh, is revealed in Revelation chapter 8, verse 7. It says that the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hell and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up, right? So a third of basically everything around us is burnt up. So something takes place that creates this type of destruction that is evident for the people around them. Second trumpet, Revelation chapter 8, verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed, right? So we have some other type here in our second trumpet where a third of things are destroyed. We see blood that comes into the waters. The third trumpet, Revelation chapter 8 verse 10 The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter, right? So you have here again trumpet number three you end up with a third of the water poisoned. So you've got this, this, these things that are happening, right, to the world around you. Now, I, I just, I, I want to make a, a, a uh, maybe an acute observation here for you, okay? All right. These cycles that we see in the first three trumpets, they are all natural catastrophes. These are all things that look like the world is dying, right? Now, again, this is where we can move into these areas of you just don't know what you don't know. If the world were going to come to a place where these things were going to happen, um, let, me, let me think about how to say this. Okay, Genesis chapter 3. All right, I'm going to go all the way back. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. They're receiving the punishment for their decision. And it says there in Genesis 3 that uh, Eve will have a, a descendant. There will be a seed that comes from her that will, that will crush the head of the enemy, right? He'll strike his foot. The serpent will strike back, but that the enemy, the serpent there will be destroyed, right? Will be crushed. Now, that is the only uh, prophecy that we have on Jesus at this point as far as what's coming. And I believe that it's also the only prophetic word that the enemy had, all right? So, I want you to track with me. God, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, the enemy is not those things. The enemy has the benefit of having lived a really long time, so the enemy knows a lot, right? The, the enemy has encountered generation after generation after generation of mankind, but the enemy is not all-knowing. So all that the enemy knows in Genesis 3 is that at some point there will be a descendant that will defeat him. So we get to Genesis 6, and it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, and they took unto them their own, and they bore Nephilim, right? So now we get into this like crazy text. And God says that every thought of man was wicked. Now, what was going on at that point, right, uh, with Noah, 
is Peter and Jude give some insight into this as to how they understand it. And because we believe that they are being led by the Holy Spirit, we would believe that this is a biblical understanding, that there was sexual sin taking place in the days of Noah. And that this sexual sin had taken over and was creating some type of evil among the people. And uh, what appears to have been happening is that if all the enemy knew was that through Eve a descendant would come, it appears as if though the enemy were somehow trying to corrupt the bloodline. Because if the enemy can take the prophecy and somehow manipulate it and twist it into his own so it can't be fulfilled, right, then he can take control of the narrative. And naively, he believes this. And I believe that we see that pattern formed there. We get to Isaiah, and I've said this before, but Isaiah is the first one, right, that gives us insight that it will be Emmanuel, God in the flesh, right? I believe that in that moment, throughout all of time and existence, there was a, a reverberation that shot out that the angels found out in that moment, that demons found out in that moment that God was coming in the flesh. It was not revealed until it was revealed through Isaiah. And that changes the direction of how the enemy is at work to manipulate and twist the prophecies. Now, I would argue that if prophetically speaking, the enemy knew that one of the signs that Jesus' return was going to be coming had to do with a global series of catastrophes, then you would create an alternative narrative. Now, I'm not trying to step on your ecological toes right after Earth Day, right? So, maybe all of this is how God does it, but I am saying that we absolutely could have people who write off incredible devastation as being a part of climate change as a distraction. I believe that that would fall right in line with how the enemy does things, okay? So, we have these first three trumpets, and the world does not look the same, okay? Now we get to the fourth trumpet. The fourth trumpet in Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, it says that the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So when we get to this fourth one, Something happens to a third of natural light. Now, I don't know how to explain that, what that looks like. I think that, that, that inside of all of these natural catastrophes, right, some type of argument could be made because there are clearly people who still, in the midst of all of this, do not believe. And the Scripture makes that known. There are people in the midst of all of these things, they still hold to other gods, other forms of faith, other ways of living. And then before we jump into the fifth trumpet, we get a woe. And this is, I think, just a, a moment for the church, right? Because we've been reading about the, the churches, we've been reading about these uh, seals that are coming out, and maybe we just have not taken it serious enough. And so, in the, in the middle of this thing with the trumpets, we get this pause, okay? In verse 13, it says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as if it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So, here's the woe. Hey, these first four are pretty bad, but you haven't seen anything yet. You thought that these were bad. You thought this was difficult. But there is some hardship coming that makes this pale in comparison. And so that brings us to the fifth trumpet, uh, Revelation 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. What is the, the bottomless pit? Well, again, 
If we take Peter and Jude referencing the time of Noah to be literal, then the understanding was that the world had fallen into sexual immorality and that there, were, uh, there was a demonic presence on the earth and that they were actually put into a prison. Peter actually refers to this prison as Tartarus, which is an interesting term in itself because the word, and that marker bit it, because the word Tartarus, Zoe thought that was funny, uh, the word Tartarus is not found anywhere else in Scripture, but it is found in Greek mythology. And it's only found in Greek mythology to reference the home of the Titans, the half-god half-human beings that were bound up. So, why does Peter use the word Tartarus? I would have to make an argument that he knows that there are other tales being told, and he is making sure that they understand that, hey, this over here in myth, right, is derived from this story where God flooded the earth. He said, I'll never destroy the entire earth again by water. Next time it'll be by fire, right? I'll never destroy the entire world by water again. Flood came. What did he do? He locked up in chains of uh, eternal darkness some beings and were given a warning that when they are released, it will be bad. And when this fifth trumpet, right, sounds, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, Uh, the bottomless pit opens. Verse 2, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came uh, locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with uh, horses rushing into battle. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now, this is another interesting fact, and we talked about this in a series we did a couple of years ago, um, What's in the Upside Down. The, the being that we call Satan or Lucifer, that is not a name, right? That is a descriptor. We don't actually know the serpent's name. Right? We've, we have taken on that, and we have called them Satan. We have called it uh, Lucifer. But when we actually get down to it, John even, what he does is he'll use language, and he says that, that, that serpent, that liar, that deceiver from the garden, like he'll go and he'll give all these descriptors so that we'll know it's the same one that's been described. But there is one that has a name that's in this bottomless pit, and he is called Apollyon. And, and another really interesting idea here is that in Peter and Jude's references to this bottomless pit, that this is where we get the idea that during Jesus's death, right, he went and he preached to those that were in the bottomless pit. He, I think he was probably preaching not to the people who had turned their back on God, but he had probably gone to tell Apollyon and all of those that have been locked up that you lost, that everything you were trying to do in Genesis 6, I am the fruit of that which you tried to stop. My name's Jesus. I came in the flesh. I lived the perfect life, and I'm going back, and it's on. Like, you're going to see what it looks like when you're released. And this is probably why there's such fury in these creatures' hearts when they are released on the earth. Now, that's the fifth trumpet. The sixth one, okay, that we get to in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, 
Who are these? The, this is the four riders that we got a glimpse of with the four seals. So the sixth trumpet right here, this is the four riders again. So what I wanted you to see was that the way that John writes this, it's apocalyptic literature, it's dealing with a lot of uh, a sim symbology, is that when we begin to kind of script it out ourselves, right, because this causes us to do deep dive, it causes us to do more than just surface read it, what we find out is that even though the purpose of it is the seven seals, right, the way that we know that the seals are starting or are going to start is through these trumpet blasts where we begin to see these things happening, now we can go back to understanding when the scroll is going to be opened. Revelation 9 verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is what he says. He says that even in the midst of all of this, judgment does not lead anyone to Christ. Judgment does not lead anyone to Christ. And this is part of the big idea for us today. This is our takeaway because my whole thing is, is when people are asking, is this the end? Is this part of the end times? Are we living in the last days? I can't tell you if we're living in the last days, right? But here's what I do know, that even in the midst of the last days, there is hope. And that even in the midst of chaos like we have never seen on earth, there is hope. But the hope is not going to be found in the fact that all these people are dying and somehow that's going to lead people to Christ. All, of these, all this pain and suffering is not going to make your family members go, oh man, there's a, there's a Jesus. I want to know that Jesus. So before we get to trumpet number seven okay, which is all the way down here, John now is given the scroll. He takes it, and he's told to eat it, right? That means to ingest it, to consume it, right? And he says it's bitter. It's a hard word, right? And he, we get this illustration of what it looks like in that somewhere during this time period at the end of the trumpets, there will be these two witnesses that will come, right? And they will come and they will declare that uh, Jesus is king, that the world is being led by something that is evil. And this is what the Scripture says. The Scripture says they will be hated. They will be hated. And that a beast will kill them. And that nobody will remove their bodies. This beast kills the two witnesses. The two witnesses lay there. The world looks on. And what does the world do? The world celebrates. In fact, the, the text says that people begin to give each other gifts like it's a holiday. There is a celebration that is taking place. So all of this judgment that they've seen, all this hardship that they've experienced, it doesn't lead them to Jesus. They continue to do what they were doing, right? And so you can, uh, here's how I feel as a pastor, right? I can talk about things and talk about things and talk about things. It just is not the thing that is going to change people's hearts. Something else has to happen. There has to be an internal moment where you're connecting with Jesus in order for that to take place. And look at this here in Revelation chapter 13. The two witnesses are brought back to life. Their bodies left there, the world watching, and then the world sees their bodies brought back to life. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Judgment does not lead them to Christ, but self-sacrifice leads multitudes. So are we in the last days? I don't know, but I can tell you this, that if you care about the people around you and you want them to know Jesus, no amount of judgment and punishment and railing on them is going to ever be able to do what self-sacrifice and loving will be able to do. And can I tell you that that love is without compromise? 
It is a fine line, but it is about sacrifice. And what happens is these two witnesses die. The Scripture says that they are resurrected, and it is because of their sacrifice that people look on and come to know Jesus. And this is the beauty of it. We're in the midst of, of, of a ruling power that is the enemy. We're in the middle of it, and people are still coming to know Jesus. So there is hope. It really doesn't matter if it is all falling apart. Coming to know Jesus is the hope that fixes it all. And so the revelation is that God is lifted up not by His judgment, but by our sacrifice. Are we willing to put our lives in His hands? Are we willing to walk it out? Listen, I'm, I'm not like a, uh, if you know me, I'm not like some anti-gun, anti-protect your home. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not that, right? Okay? I enjoy going shooting. I'm sorry if you don't. I mean, you're missing out. Now, we're talking about targets, not anything else. Well, I mean, I guess some of y'all hunt. Um, yeah, and that's okay too. Um, I'm not against any of those things. People go, well, you know, you know, Jesus was a pacifist, so you shouldn't protect your home. I don't, that's not a biblical concept either, right? Right? There's just a balance. Like, I'm not going to go running down the street chasing people with my gun to tell them about Jesus. <laughs> the best way I've heard it explained is a, one of my best friends, he's a missionary, lives in Mexico, and uh, I mean, it's, it's terrible again there right now. The, the, the cartels, it's brutal. Um, he says that there are days where he leaves s- still. This has been going on for years now. He says that he leaves his house and he has to drive past the city hall for his town and that it is not uncommon to see the, the heads of people hanging from bridges. Right? This is not what you and I experience in life, right? Okay. Um, we, we were uh, oppressed last night with traffic being stopped over on the Tybee Bridge and women on top of their cars dancing. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it was oppressive, you know, for some, but it was not the same thing. You, you get what I'm saying? And I asked Isaac, I said, so what do you do if you get stopped by the cartel? And he said, I purpose in my heart that they don't know Jesus and they need to know Jesus. So if my family's with me, I'm going to fight with everything inside of me to get my family to safety. But if I'm by myself, I won't kill them because it would be better for me to die and go into eternity with Jesus and them at least have another opportunity for a breath to know Jesus. And that's, that, that's, that's big boy thinking right there, you know? to purpose in your heart that it is more important for my brothers and sisters to know Jesus than it is for me to be right. And so I say again, there is a fine line. There is a balance to how we live this life, and we have to make sure we don't get pulled on to either side of these arguments, but that we walk it with integrity and righteousness to honor God, not to please man. Now, somehow this, this is hidden. It's secret. It's unknown. The writing in this seal and the information, it's, it's not something that just is innate inside of us, but it's something that has to be revealed. My hope and prayer is that, that this type of living would be revealed to us as children of God. And so the seventh trumpet blows, Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord of his, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so somewhere on this timeline, the seventh trumpet brings in Christ and His kingdom, and there's revelation, and something new begins. And, I, and this is why I fall into this camp is because I just don't see this yet. I just don't see the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. I just don't see that. But I am looking for it. I am looking for it. So are we near the end? I can't tell you, but I can tell you that there's hope. My final thought is Revelation verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. 
There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The, the, the revealing of God and His nature and His presence is something that you will definitely know has happened. You will not be going, what did we just see? The world will be aware of it. Now, who are these riders? What is the beast? How will we know it's all beginning? Those are the questions I hope to tackle in the coming weeks. Thank you guys for hanging in a little bit longer today. What excuses do you have, right? What are your reasons for not living for Him and living the way that He's asked you to, right? Because if we are living in the last days, the world desperately needs people who are going to live righteous lives, walk it out in holiness, because there are going to be so many who are suffering that need to know Jesus. Let's stand to our feet and close right now. If you do not know Jesus, right, if you have not made Him Lord of your life, and today you're sitting here hearing all of this and something's resonating inside of you, I don't want that to be me. I want the Holy Spirit to be the one that's drawing you. And if you want to know this Jesus, we have prayer ministry teams that'll be in the back available to talk with you, share that with you, and lead you to Jesus. If you are in this place and you are not living in a way, like, right? So you're like, I know Jesus, but man, I, I really fall into probably some of these seven church camps, maybe not the faithful one. Maybe there are aspects of my lifestyle that don't honor Him, and today I need to make some changes. Then can I tell you that that, that, that call to repentance is something that is, is about change inside of you, Right? right? Creating some accountability, going to people who you have sinned against or you have sinned with and say, say, hey, look, I've been doing this wrong. I've made excuses. I want to be a better person because I want to reflect the goodness and mercy of Jesus, right? That's it. It's, it's not rocket science. And that's why that we get the illustrations of the seven churches because we all have the ability to be faithful. We all have that capacity to fall into a place where we are faithful, where we are living the way that He intends us to live. And if that's you today, I just pray that you would pray a prayer of repentance. If you want prayer, to somebody to agree with you in prayer, prayer ministry teams are available in the back. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and grace, your goodness. We ask that you be with us. Strengthen us in all we do. Lord, we are looking for understanding. We want to know how to live our lives. And we want, we, we, you know this, but we want, we want to better understand what the future holds so that we can we can live our lives as effectively, efficiently as possible. Thank you for what you do. In your mighty name, amen, amen. Guys, we'll see you next Sunday. As always, go change your world.
Are here.